When you think of the hundreds of millions of lives sacrificed, killed, murdered, slaughtered, starved, bombed, in order to protect geographical regions, in order to protect ethnicities, in order to protect cultures, it is really an astonishing thing when you think about what a radical program has been underway for the past uh, 60 odd years in the West to say, well, countries are fungible. You can just move masses of people in, you can move masses of people out, things can be just shuffled and sliced and diced, and everything's going to be great. Well, there are some questions to be asked about this whole program. The whole program of what's my diversity, multiculturalism, whatever you want to call it, mass immigration generally from the third world, is not something that the native population has asked for. It is not something that the native population has been consulted about. And in fact, when they are consulted, as in Brexit or the election of Donald Trump, they tend to say, whoa, let's slow this down a little bit. Let's get some facts. Let's figure things out. Or let's put a hold on things to see if what's already been established is actually going to work before we continue with more and more of the same. But it's got this kind of momentum, this this um, avalanche. It starts with a snowflake, ends with, uh, well, <laughs> a giant mess often, and it is a program that now has its own momentum that is driven by fear and greed. Greed for votes, because one thing that's reliable about third world immigrants is they're going to vote for collectivist parties. They're going to vote Labour. They're going to vote Democrat. They're going to vote for the left as a whole. And it is a program driven by fear as well. Greed for votes and fear of being labeled a racist, fear of being labeled a xenophobe, fear of being labeled intolerant, uh, and so on. And these are not arguments. And there is important information to analyze. Immigration at the moment is the number one issue for American voters. And the least important issue is racism and inequality and so on. So people are want to talk about this, but we need to have the facts when we start talking about these issues. So we're going to drill into some essential information. And please, like, subscribe, and share this information. It is coming from a place of genuine intellectual curiosity and a desire to avoid any potential problems as far as that can be achieved. This is Changing America, Immigration Understood. Now, the first thing to understand is a country... It's not just a landmass. If you take the entire population of Japan out of Japan, and then you bring the entire population of Mexico into Japan, is it still Japan? Well, no. It's now Mexico on an island. And so a country is not just a landmass. It is not that the Constitution of America has created this magic aura that all who touch the soil in America to live there suddenly get imbued with 2,500 years of Western philosophy, of Christian values, of the Enlightenment, of, of the Age of Reason, of individualism, and all of the potent language and, and words and concepts that English contains. There is no magic soil that transforms people into those who value the Western tradition. And so when you replace the native population of a country you replace its culture, you replace its values. And that is something that is very important to remember. So we're going to look at how those values may be changing based upon immigration. Now, using the United Nations International Migration Report, Country Specific Average Intelligence, or IQ, the Economic Freedom Index, the Corruption Perceptions Index, and the Human 
Freedom Index, we aim to paint in this presentation an accurate picture on how America has and will continue to change via immigration. And these are all very important aspects, and I'll explain as we go along why they're so important and why they really need to be evaluated and considered when trying to make decisions about immigration. So according to United Nations International Migration Report 2017, and I quote, who is an international migrant? For the purpose of estimating the international migrant stock, international migrants are equated either with the foreign-born or with foreign citizens. So this is closer to immigrants, migrants, rather than what may be used in, in Europe for those who are seeking economic advantage. So what is the economic freedom index? This is very important. If you value your economic freedom, the question is if you bring in millions of people from other cultures that do not have the experience, the culture, and the value for economic freedom, does that erode the economic freedom within your country? In other words, is your culture a sandcastle and is immigration a wave? Well, I guess the sand particles are still there, but they're not really in the shape of a castle now, are they? So the Economic Freedom Index, what is it? Here's the quote. We measure economic freedom based on 12 quantitative and qualitative factors grouped into four broad categories or pillars of economic freedom. Rule of law, property rights, government integrity, judicial effectiveness, government size, government spending, tax burden, fiscal health, regulatory efficiency, business freedom, labor freedom, monetary freedom, open markets, trade freedom, investment freedom, financial freedom. Each of the 12 economic freedoms within these categories is graded on a scale of zero to 100. Now, I understand there's a little bit of squint and eyeballing in some of these numbers. And that's perfectly fair. They're never going to be accurate to the nth degree because such a measurement would be impossible. But What's important is where they are relative to each other, and these can be painted in broad strokes. I mean, I think we all understand that North Korea is less free than the United States in general, and there are ways of measuring these things. The sources will all be below. Please feel free to look through the methodologies and figure out how the numbers were arrived at. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater by saying because the numbers aren't perfect, they should not be used at all. The perfect is the enemy of the good. The Corruption Perception Index. Okay, here's the quote. The index, which ranks 180 countries and territories by their perceived levels of public sector corruption, according to experts and business people, uses a scale of zero to 100, whereas where zero is highly corrupt and 100 is very clean. The Human Freedom Index. Quote, the Human Freedom Index, HFI, presents a broad measure of human freedom understood as the absence of coercive constraint. In other words, if you are allowed to use self-defense, then you are defending yourself against violence. If the government is allowed to initiate the use of force against you, then you have coercive constraints on your behavior, and that's important to measure. Human Freedom Index. This index uses 79 distinct indicators of personal and economic freedom in the following areas. Rule of law, security and safety, Movement, religion, association, assembly, and civil society. Expression and information, 
identity and relationships, size of government, legal system and property rights, access to sound money, freedom to trade internationally, and regulation of credit, labor, and business. A scale of zero to ten, where ten represents more freedom. So, if you change the people who inhabit the country, you change the country, you change its culture, you change its values, what changes are currently underway in the United States? And which direction is America going? America started with extraordinary levels of personal, political, and economic freedom. Diversity is considered to be a strength. Therefore, America should should be becoming more free as it becomes more diverse. Let's look at the numbers. So migrants in America, these are United Nations estimates on foreign-born or foreign citizens. This is astounding. It's the largest human migration in history. 1990, migrants in America, 23,251,026. 1995, 28,451,053. 2,034,814,053. 2005, 39,000,000. 258,243. 2010, 48,178,873. 2015, 48,178,877. 2017, 49,767,970. Close to 50,000,000 foreign-born or foreign citizens in the United States. And if you think that does not have the power to move culture, to move politics, to shift values, you are greatly mistaken. That is an enormous chunk of the population. According to the most recent population figures, these estimates would place the foreign-born or foreign citizen population in the United States at 15.2% of the total population. Now, It's one thing if people come to America, as they did in the 19th century or before, where there was no welfare state, where there was no government saying, oh, well, let's give you this, let's give you that, let's make sure that you're educated in your own language, let's accommodate this, let's accommodate that. In other words, creating moats around culture so that the um, rewards of integration become less and the rewards of non-integration become greater. But uh, this is an astonishing human movement of 50 million people. So, how do the total foreign-born or foreign citizen population in the United States compare to other countries worldwide? Let's have a look. So, this is the top 10 countries by United Nations estimates on foreign-born or foreign citizens. So, the numbers. And you can see here, this is a very top-heavy chart. The United States at close to 50 million people, Saudi Arabia, over 12 million, Germany, over 12 million, the Russian Federation, over 11 million, the United Kingdom, 8.8 million, United Arab Emirates, 8.3 million, France, 7.9 million, Canada, 7.8 million, Australia, 7 million people, Spain, almost 6 million itself. Now, look at the United States and its acceptance 
and openness towards having tens of millions of people of other races and other cultures, a lot of them, come into the country. And still, America is called extraordinarily racist. Because you can't satisfy these standards, right? Now, I understand, and, and it's reasonable if you have this objection, of course, saying, well, but the populations are different, so let's try a little bit more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So there are, of course, population disparities among various countries. So let's look at the estimated percentage of the population of foreign-born or foreign citizens in each country. So the United States, 15.2% of the population. Saudi Arabia, 37.8%. Germany, 14.6%. Russian Federation, 8.1%. United Kingdom, 13.4%. United Arab Emirates, 89.5%. France, 11.8%. Canada, 21.7%. Australia, 29%. And Spain, 12.7%. Now, these are, of course, Western countries, with the exception of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Now, a couple of points here. Saudi Arabia and UAE, they're absolute monarchies. So they don't have the same, well, you know, lots of immigrants are going to shift the votes, the political parties and so on, and they can just turn it off. They can kick people out. They can do whatever they want without all of this... Uh, democratic and voting and electoral college stuff that goes on in uh, America and the general votes as a whole in Western countries. So in other words, you can have immigrants come into your country without it directly affecting your culture as much, still does, but not as much if you remain an absolutist monarchy. Plus, of course, there are, let's say, uh, Muslims coming into the West building mosques. I'm going to go out on a limb here in Saudi Arabia and UAE. I don't think that there are hundreds of thousands or millions of Christians going in and building a lot of churches. So there's much more compatibility in the immigrants, uh, culturally, religious, and so on, in Saudi Arabia and UAE than there would be in the Western countries. You see, the West is still called racist. West is still called xenophobic. The West is still called all these terrible things because there will be no numbers that will satisfy people who wish to make that charge. So migrants in America, origin country, foreign-born or foreign citizens in America. Where are they hailing from, so to speak? Now, no big surprise here. Top right, what does that look like? Oh, it looks almost like the game of hangman. Mexico, 12,683,066. Next highest is China, 2.4 million. India, 2.3 million. Philippines, just over 2 million. Puerto Rico, 1.9 million. Vietnam, 1.4 million. El Salvador, just under 1.4 million. Cuba, 1.25 million. Republic of Korea, 1.177 million. Dominican Republic, just over a million. Now, these are United Nations estimates. They are likely to be incredibly low. There are intelligent and recent estimates that in America, there are over 30 million illegal immigrants, of course, mostly from Mexico. And Coulter's Adios America goes into more detail about this and presents a very compelling case. So 30 million, you can compare that to the 12.6 million, uh, supposedly from Mexico, and see just how accurate these numbers may be. Because they say, well, it's 11 million, but they've said it's been 11 million for the past couple of decades. So there's no way it's still that. So vastly undercounted. Now, I'm going to talk about IQ here. 
And the reason I'm going to talk about that, it, well, there's a variety of reasons. An advanced, technologically sophisticated society that has things like freedom of speech and separation of church and state to a large degree, freedom of association and so on, well, it requires a high IQ population to sustain. So uh, intelligence is that which allows us to, in particular, defer gratification. And so if somebody disagrees with you and it makes you really angry, we say, well, you know, freedom of speech and so on, right? Or do you get angry and try and pass a law or pop them in the head and so on? So the deferral of gratification is very, very important. Also, the higher the IQ, often the lower the birth rate. And the lower IQ, the higher the birth rate and so on. And that's a, a, big, a big issue. And so it is important to talk about IQ. There are various studies out there that indicate that once your population goes, uh, average IQ in the country goes to the low 90s and below, 90 or so, you can't sustain a free society. You can't sustain a democracy. You can't really have much of a free market because it's just a very advanced phenomenon that requires a intelligent population as a whole. And different ethnicities do have different levels of IQ. You can't ever judge individuals, but when you zoom out enough, which immigration kind of forces you to do because the numbers are so staggeringly huge, you need to look at uh, the source country's IQ. If you look at uh, places like Mexico, well, Mexico has uh, an IQ in the mid to high 80s. Uh, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, it's in the 70s and so on. So these are big challenges because there are significant genetic portions to IQ. There are estimates that by the time you're 18, your IQ is 80% genetic. And since nobody really knows how to change IQ, and Jason Richwine has done the research into the second and third generation of Hispanic immigrants and says the IQ has not really budged from the uh, beginning, um, the IQ of the original immigrants remains roughly the same as the IQ into the second and third generations. Therefore, the IQ issue among Hispanics or mestizos is functionally permanent. And so this is another big challenge. Now, you can say, well, we, could, we can, some countries, well, take the best and the brightest. Well, that's true. The best and the brightest can come in, but there is a regression to the mean. Like if you have really tall parents, you're likely to be taller on average, but not as tall as your parents. And there is a regression to the mean. Outliers generally curve back towards the center of the bell curve. And thus, having highly intelligent immigrants from low IQ countries may give you one generation or two generations, but it generally falls back to the main uh, area. So IQ is a very significant issue. It's also important, of course, because as societies become more advanced, we get artificial intelligence, we get robots, we get automation of just about every kind. The demand in the marketplace for lower IQ individuals becomes tragically diminished. And uh, there's not much you can do, of course, about the lower IQ individuals already in your country. But the question of whether you want a whole lot more of them to come in is something that really should be discussed openly, scientifically, with curiosity, compassion, and sympathy, but with realism, because these are very real changes that are occurring to the country's demographics. So <clears throat> what are the average IQs in these various uh, countries? So the United States is 98. And which direction is it going is which direction the country will functionally go in as well. Mexico is 88. Oh, sorry, one, one other thing to mention. Some of this country-specific data is not the freshest of the bunch. Some of it has small sample sizes. So please understand, this is not comprehensive. This is not universal. This is not 
100% accurate uh, to every individual. There's bell curves within bell curves within bell curves and so on. You never judge individuals by this stuff. But it's the best data that we have, and it's important to talk about and discuss. So the United States, 98. Mexico, 88. It's a 10-point difference, a 10-point IQ difference. That is huge. China, 105. India, 82. 82. That is astonishing. Philippines, 86. Puerto Rico, 84. Vietnam, 94. El Salvador, 80. Cuba, 85. Republic of Korea, 106. Dominican Republic, 82. 82. Now, the U.S. military won't take people in the low 80s in terms of IQ. This is how we kind of know a lot about IQ is because it was originally developed to test children, but the United States Army has been using intelligence tests for a little over 100 years now. They can't find anything for people in the low 80s to do in the Army because they just can't follow those instructions. They can't figure out how to do, you know, the Army. If it moves, move it. If it doesn't move, paint it. It's not that complicated, some stuff. But in the low 80s, even the Army can't find anything for those people to do. And uh, where are they going to fit into a highly technological post-manufacturing economy? These are important questions to ask and important factors to take into consideration. I mean, we can stick our heads in the sand and just pretend we don't want to talk about any of this stuff. We can ignore reality, but we can't ignore the consequences of ignoring reality. So economic Freedom Index. Let's um, take the snapshot of where these countries are. Now, this, remember, uses a scale of 0 to 100. A 0 is unfree, and 100 is, I mean, a perfect uh, Austrian economics and anarcho-capitalist society. And so the United States currently clocking in at 75.7. Now, Mexico, 64.8. So, I really want to address this issue because it's an important one. And people say, well... Okay, Mexico is less free economically than the United States, but, but, the best and the brightest leave Mexico to come to the United States because they want to be in a more free economy, they want to be in a more free society. Well, that's certainly true for some, no, no question, no doubt, and, and I can understand that, that perspective. However, two sort of facts push back against the collective narrative that that's what's going on. The first, of course, is that they overwhelmingly end up on welfare, which is not seeking the entrepreneurial spirit exactly. It's kind of fastening on to the existing taxpayers and the future debt holders of American bonds in order to not exactly pursue your manifestation of excellence in the free market. So the fact that they sit on welfare. And secondly, of course, the uh, Hispanics from Mexico overwhelmingly vote for big government, for the left, for collectivist policies and so on. And have almost no interest in libertarianism as a whole, and I've done other presentations on that. So saying, well, they're fleeing to become more economically free, well, a um, lot of them on welfare, and they vote for big government. So I think that is not a very sustainable thesis, to put it mildly. All right. Economic freedom, China, 57.8. India, 54.5. Philippines, 65. There is no data available for Puerto Rico. Vietnam, 53.1. El Salvador, 63.2. Cuba, 31.9. Republic of Korea, 73.8. Dominican Republic, 61.6. 
So this is important, people. I'm sorry <laughs> to be so emphatic. Very, very important. Who's got the most economic freedom? The United States has the most economic freedom. Of the top 10 countries sending people to the United States, they're all less free economically. All less free economically. Do you think this is going to have no impact whatsoever on the continuance of economic freedom in the United States? Of course it's going to pull it down. Of course it's going to be an undertow. Of course these are people who aren't used to economic freedom. That doesn't mean they won't appreciate it. It doesn't mean some of them can't work and expand and excel within it. But if you have 75.7 as your economic freedom index and you're importing millions of people from far less free countries, economically speaking, do you not think that's going to change your culture and respect for economic freedom and value of economic freedom? <sighs> Corruption perceptions index. So this is a scale from 1 to 100. Zero is highly corrupt, still higher than the Clintons, but highly corrupt. And 100 is very clean. So United States, 75. Uh, I guess since Lois Lerner left. 75 for the United States. Pretty good. Pretty good. And they're not so good for immigrants uh, and their culture. Mexico, 29. 20. Nine. And I'm pretty sure Mexico only got a score of 29 because the researcher was threatened with being hung from a bridge without his head. So Mexico, 29. China, 41. India, 40. Philippines, 34. No data available for Puerto Rico. Vietnam, 35. El Salvador, 33. Cuba, 47. Republic of Korea, 54. Dominican Republic, 29. So look at this. Look at this. There's barely any that have half the corruption perception index, or to put it another way, most of the people are coming from cultures that are more than twice as corrupt as America, which is pretty good for not being corrupt. But do you not think this is going to have an effect? People who've grown up used to this kind of corruption, used to this way of getting things done? Because these people are going to get into office. And if they come from such corrupt cultures and, and they get into office, what do you think they're going to do with that office again? It's not for certain, but there are trends. Yeah, there's some great Chinese basketball players, but not a lot. <laughs> Statistically, not a lot. It's a height thing. And uh, so, is this the best in the world? Is this, you know, if, if people are born in the United States and they grow up with that culture, then they grow up being used to about a 75, making them prove it. Why would you want to bring in millions of people from countries and cultures at least or more than often twice as corrupt as the United States, Cuba and Republic of Korea accepted? What is this going to do to America? Human Freedom Index. A scale of 0 to 10, 10 represents maximum freedom, the most freedom. No data here for Puerto Rico or Cuba. So Human Freedom Index, United States clocking in at 8.4, Mexico 6.9, China 6, India 6.5, Philippines 7, Vietnam 6.2, El Salvador 7.1, Republic of Korea 8.2, Dominican Republic 7. Again, all lower 
than the United States. The United States was a singular experiment and a gift of the geniuses of the Enlightenment in terms of a small government, maximum human freedom, First Amendment, Second Amendment, you name it, limitations on the powers of the state, limitations on the power of police, a relatively, <laughs> I should say, a formerly relatively uncorrupt judicial system and so on. What is going to happen when successive waves of people who've grown up with far less freedom, who are used to far less freedom, come into America? Sandcastle, tsunami. United States estimates. So now we're going to go from the top 10 of sources for immigration to America. We're now going to go from 11 to 20. We're going to slice and dice these, do these 10 by 10, because, I mean, you, you can't see it otherwise, and it's worth going through these in more detail. So migrants in America, these are the top 11 to 20 countries. Where are they coming from? Guatemala, 975,504. Canada, 893,491. Well, there is some tasty sunlight in, in Florida. Jamaica, 773,204. Colombia, 753,847. United Kingdom, 748,206. Haiti, 671,499. Germany, 645,314. Honduras, 597,647. Peru, 478,784, and Poland, 473,864. So, boom, Guatemala to Poland, how that a slice and dice. How is this culture going to affect the United States? Well, let's look at the average IQ. Now, this is starting from 60 upwards. I'm not trying to, you know, it's just, there's nothing below 60. Uh, and so, uh, we're just zooming in from 60 to 100 here so you can see the differences more clearly. If you're on your cell phone, you United States, remember, clocking in at 98 average IQ. Guatemala, 79. Now, the average IQ for blacks in America is in the mid to high 80s. And, of course, there are lots of challenges with the black community in America, and household net worth is far lower, job opportunities are lower. So this is an important sort of metric or measure to compare to. So Guatemala, average IQ of 79. Canada, average IQ of 99. Hey, we win by one, but not if I leave. No, I'm just kidding. Jamaica, average IQ of 71. And remember, there are massive indications that it is significantly, if not overwhelmingly, genetic, which means don't know how to budget. Now, there are a few things that could be done that may help a little bit here and there, but here's the problem. If you have parents who have an IQ of 71, what kind of quality parenting can you expect from people who have no fault of their own? What kind of parenting can you expect from parents who have an IQ of 71? Because, hey, well, there are all these sophisticated techniques that you could use to maybe budge the IQ by a point or two. But parents with an IQ of 71 have to robustly and rigidly enforce those changes. So you can say, well, it's more environmental, or even if you believe it's 100% environmental, sure. But the environment is parents with an average IQ of 71. Don't get mad at me. These are the facts as far as they can be ascertained. Oh, and by the way, IQ tests, they're not culturally specific. They have been turned into symbol questions. They have been, they have been 
The whole issue of race specificity or cultural specificity, do you know what a regatta is? This has been dealt with long, long ago, and they, these are as good an indicators as you can possibly get. And, and one of the reasons we know this, and this is all the way back to uh, Hernstein and Murray's The Bell Curve from 1994, is that um, if you normalize, say, income and educational levels, uh, educational attainment, if you normalize them by IQ, differences disappear. Right? So if you have group A that has a lower IQ, they'll make less money and then have lower educational attainment on the whole as opposed to group B. But if you find individuals within group A who have the same IQ as the average of group B, then they have the same income and educational level in general. So IQ is the great equalizer, the great measure of the great leveler. And uh, there's so many ways that it's been validated. I've done interviews with experts. There's tons of books you can read on it. Don't just wave a magic wand because the information is uncomfortable and, and say, well, it's this or it's culturally specific or it's racist. Or... No, this has all been dealt with and we still need to grit our teeth and stand in the this sort of sandstorm of facts and, and continue to plow on because the cost of avoiding this information is catastrophic beyond words. All right, Jamaica clocking in with an average IQ of 71. Colombia, 14th biggest um, exporter of people, importer from people. Colombia, average IQ of 84. United Kingdom, average IQ 100. Now, again, tick, 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 going out on a limb, I'm going to assume this data is just a smidge older and the number is lower now because of massive third world immigration into the United Kingdom. Haiti, oh, man, Haiti has been largely free of colonial control for hundreds of years. Haiti, average IQ of 67. Average IQ of 67. There's 15 points below what the army can even start to use. Germany, average IQ of 99. Honduras, average IQ of 81. Peru, average IQ of 85. And Poland, average IQ of 99. And do remember, the IQ is sort of normalized around the white population. It could be anything, right? Which is why uh, the... the, um, the uh, uh, the, the Japanese and the Chinese and so on have higher IQs than whites and Ashkenazi Jews reportedly have higher IQs and so on. And so whites kind of fall around the middle of this. It's kind of normalized and changes every year so that the whites are normalized at 100 and that's sort of the basic metric. Economic Freedom Index. So, United States clocking in at 75.7. Remember, zero is unfree, 100 is economically perfectly free. 75.7. Guatemala, 63.4. Canada, 77.7. Oh, that's prior to Trudeau. Anyway, Jamaica, 69.1. Colombia, 68.9. United Kingdom, 78. Haiti, 55.8. Germany, 74.2. Honduras, 60.6. Peru, 68.7. Poland, 68.5. So again, you have, and you can see the color coding here, the oranges are, are higher. So Canada and the UK, yeah, higher economic freedom index, but these, of course, were overwhelmingly white countries until uh, recently. <laughs> Not for long. And so where you have um, well, Germany, of course, as well, uh, uh, relatively high, but uh, yeah, where you have uh, some of the third world countries, Poland a little bit lower, some third world countries, these are the people who are coming in. What is their experience and value of economic freedom? Can you... Like, you just have to ask yourself, think of the most foreign country that you 
could move to. Just think of some place which is like, whoa, that's I don't know, like <laughs> go and go and live with uh, I don't know the um, the pygmies uh, in Africa or or wherever it's going to be. Like I don't know, go live with the Inuit and, and hunt seal with spears and and live in igloos or or I don't know some place. Uh, go go to a monastery in in Japan. Some place that's just going to feel really different, really new, where you have no language, no history, no culture. How long is it going to take for you to integrate? How long is it going to take for you to assimilate in the Inuit or in the pygmies in Africa or in a monastery in Japan? How long is it going to take for you to feel perfectly and comfortably at home? Well, the answer for the first generation is never. The answer for the second generation depends. It depends. If you are white and move to a white country, after a while, nobody knows that you were foreigners at all. But if there are racial elements, people will always know that you're from another ethnicity, from another country. If that's if the ethnicity in the country is, is still there, doesn't mean you can't share a lot of the same values. But how long would it take for you or your descendants to perfectly integrate the values of the pygmies in Africa or of the monastery in Japan or the Inuit in the uh, tundra, how long would it take? Just need to think about it. Instead of saying, will people assimilate to me, which, you know, you kind of feel like yourself already, so, you know, oh, it's great what I do. You know, people should assimilate to me. I'm sure it'll be easy. But that's because you're already assimilated to you. Think of the most foreign place you can think of. How long would it take for you to assimilate and absorb and automate the values that drove that culture? Well... The answer be a long time. And sometimes never. I mean, there was entire generations of Germans. They went to, I think in the 19th century, they went to Russia. They were good at um, helping people with arts and courts. They were tutors and so on. The whole German populations went to Russia, lived there for about 100 years, never learned Russian. And when the revolution came along, they just all went back to Germany. Eh, bungeed in, didn't change, bungeed out again. Corruption Perceptions Index. Hmm. How corrupt do these countries seem? Again, zero. Highly corrupt, 100 is very clean. The United States, 75. Guatemala, 28. Canada, 82. It's so weird to be nationalistic. <laughs> I can tell you from my history, it's so weird, but don't fight the feeling. Jamaica, 44. Ugh. Colombia, 37. United Kingdom, 82. Well, very stiff up in the pay. What, what? Haiti, 22. You can get anything you want in Haiti if you have enough dirt cookies. I'm not kidding. Go to YouTube, Google dirt cookies in Haiti. I'm not kidding. Germany, 81. They are very inefficient at being corrupt. Honduras, 29. Peru, 37. Poland, 60. So again, Canada, United Kingdom, Germany, white countries, white history, enlightenment, exception Germany, a little bit. And so with other countries, uh, Poland accepted. But again, Poland was under the grip of communism for decade after decade after decade. And that had a huge impact on um, the culture as a whole. So yeah. human freedom index. United States, 8.4. Remember, higher is better. Guatemala, 7.1. Canada, 8.5. Oh, yeah, stop doing that. <laughs> Jamaica, 7.2. Colombia, 6.7. United Kingdom, 8.5. Haiti, 6.8. Germany, 8.5. Honduras, 6.8. Peru, 7.4. Poland, 8.1. So again, all the red bars are countries and cultures 
that are less free. You're bringing in people who are much, much used to less freedom. Is that going to have an effect? Of course it is. I understand. So now we're going to do 21 to 30 of uh, sources for immigration into America. Ecuador, 470,000 and change. Russian Federation, 424,000 and change. 402,700 come from Iran. Iran. 389,507 from Italy. Ukraine gives 377,365. Turkey. 373,059. Pakistan, 370,353. Japan, 368,351. Brazil, 367,521. And Guyana, 294,318. How do these countries break out when it comes to crashing into the edifice of enlightenment known as the American political legal system? Hmm. And economic. Well, average IQ, United States... 98. Look, it hasn't gone down since they started the presentation. Because of this presentation, it's gone up, baby, way up. Ecuador, oh, 88, 88. Russian Federation, 97. Tough to get them to take the test when they're sober. Iran, 84. Italy, very smart country, 102. Ukraine, 97. Turkey, 90. Pakistan, 84. See, now remember... You want to look at cousin marriage in these countries as well. Cousin marriage shaves 10 points or more off the IQ of the population. If you marry your cousin in breeding, 10 points or more. And there are cultures around the world, well, they're pretty dedicated to marrying cousins and having children with cousins. And you get um, lower IQ, massive increases in birth defects you can do the searches for this what's happened what this is doing to the nhs in uh, england it's um, it's bad it's bad 84 in pakistan japan yes 105 uh, iq i believe that's the highest if not one of the highest in the world brazil 87 guyana 87 so again italy and japan yes and and this is why right we, we know all of this east asians very high iqs right and so Japan and, and Korea and China and so on, very high IQs, which is why we know that whites aren't racist. Because if whites were racist, then they would dislike all other races. But the East Asians do better than whites in supposedly these white racist countries. Why? Because IQ is king. IQ rules everything in the free market. And if you have a higher IQ population, on average, they're going to do better. And if you have a lower IQ population, on average, in general, they're going to do worse. So look at these, look at the red here. These are countries and cultures and ethnicities coming into America. The red is lower IQ on average. Now, 97, 98, not that big a difference. But, you know, when you're starting to talk about 88, 84, 87, 90, that's not good. That's not good at all. Economic Freedom Index. Are you importing people who are used to freedom? Well, this is the interesting question about immigration. Because, of course, if you lived in a more free country, why would you migrate to a less free country? Well, I mean, there could be some reason. You get the climate or your family's there or whatever, some obscure educational opportunity. But in general, why would you, right? So, but if you do move to a country that's more free and you come from a country that's less free, do you value that freedom? 
Well, not if you're on welfare, because welfare is a violation of property rights. Government forcibly transfers money from one group of people to another group of people, or one individual to another, if you want to get really granular. So we'll get to all of that in a sec. So remember, zero, unfree, 100, economically free. US 75.7, Ecuador, number 21 in the source, 48.5. Russian Federation, 58.2. Iran, 50.9. Italy, 62.5. Ukraine, 51.9. Turkey, 65.4. Pakistan, 54.4. Japan, 72.3. Brazil, 51.4. Guyana, 58.7. Every single one of these countries, with the exception of Japan, significantly lower in economic freedom than the United States. So these are the values that people have grown up with, the values in the culture, which is more income redistribution, bigger government, more violations of property rights. That's what they're used to. What are they going to vote for? Shockingly, they seem to vote for what they're used to, which is, you understand, this is why the Democrat system and uh, in England, the labor and, and the socialists, the leftists, this is why they want to bring these people in. Because they're going to vote for big government. They know that. They know that for sure. Come on. If, I mean, just look at how the left looks at the people fleeing communism from Cuba who will vote Republican in smaller government because they hate the left. They don't like those people at all. If people flowing in from Mexico reliably voted overwhelmingly Republican, there'd be a wall across the southern border funded by the Democrats visible from space. There'd be landmines. There'd be attack coppers, uh, chopters. All of that. Now, they're importing votes because... Socialism has been discredited, so they need to stuff the ballot with demographics because they can't win the argument in the debate hall. Corruption perceptions index. Zero highly corrupt, 100 very clean, 75. For the United States, oh, it's grim. Oh, it's the broken comb of disaster. Ecuador, 32. Russian Federation, 29. Iran, 30. Italy, 50. Ukraine, 30. Turkey, 40. Pakistan, 32. Japan, yay, 73. Still not as high. Brazil, 37. Guyana, 38. Corrupt, corrupt. And, you know, we can see this if you look at some of the scams being perpetrated. Medicare scams, social security scams, Medicaid scams, food stamp scams. The Russians are all over it. It's not a race thing. They're white. <laughs> Russians are all over that stuff. Highly corrupt. They come from such a corrupt environment. They come to America like, I know how to do this. <laughs> I know how to do this corrupt stuff. I mean, if I went, I don't know, to Pakistan and, and some cop pulled me over, I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> what am I? I don't know. But uh, if you're from Russia and you can't, ah, big giant government program. <laughs> I think I know how to jimmy this one for my own advantage. I don't even know what accent that is. Not Russian at all. But but yeah, the point is that you grow up in a corrupt culture, you kind of get a lot of those skills. And then you look at the free market, where it's hard to make a living, or you look at the corruption you're totally used to, it's kind of easy to slide one way rather than the other. And look at these numbers. Whew. Tell me that's not going to change things. Human Freedom Index, US 8.4, Ecuador 6.7, Russian Federation 6.1, Iran 4.8, Italy 8, Ukraine 6, Turkey 6.8, Pakistan 5.6, Japan 8.2. Brazil, 6.3. Guyana, 6.5. Now, we'll just do a tiny sidebar here because I really, really want to be as fair as humanly possible here. Don't get me wrong. There are people, I've known these people, they come from Iran, and they are so grateful to be in America. They embrace Western values. They embrace freedom. They embrace separation of church and state. Very important. They embrace the free market. Then they're shocked, appalled, and horrified 
at the direction that the United States is going. From all of these countries and all of these cultures, from every corner of the world, there are people who flock to America, who love the freedoms of America and will fight to to protect those freedoms and extend and expand those freedoms. For sure, there are those outliers. But in general, in general, that's not how a lot of the actions uh, play out from immigrants. All right. 31 to 40. We have got another two rounds to go. Nigeria sends, or they come from Nigeria, 282,153. Nicaragua, 275,909. You know, when I was in Nicaragua, I really thought I was going to get the best coffee in the world. God, it was awful. I guess they ship all the good stuff overseas. Thailand, 263,611. Trinidad and Tobago, 251,834. Hong Kong, SAR. 244,894, Venezuela 232,448, Bangladesh 219,021, Ethiopia 217,913, Leo 210,325, and Iraq 209,971. I think still lower than the number killed in that horrifying invasion. So, 31 to 40. How are they breaking out? Well, let's look at average IQ. United States, 98. Nigeria, the source of approximately one-third of the world's email, I think. Nigeria, 84. 84 IQ, lower than blacks in Africa. 32. Nicaragua, 81. IQ, 81. Thailand, 91. Trinidad and Tobago, 85. Oh, it's wrong. It was not Japan. Hong Kong, SAR. Average IQ, 108. And that's why you see, of course, uh, so many... Uh, of uh, people from Hong Kong and China and Japan and so on at the upper echelons in Google. Uh, engineering, reasoning, spatial reasoning is fantastic in that population. And so you normalize by IQ and it turns out that, yeah, people are well proportioned in the economy, as you would expect from a profit-seeking group of highly competitive organizations and industries. So and this is why the um, the East Asians, the Japanese and, and the... Um, Chinese and North Koreans and some others, Hong Kong. This is why there's such horrible discrimination against them when it comes to entrance exams in some universities, where they have to up the scores of blacks and Hispanics. They have to maybe leave the whites more or less the same and downgrade the score of the East Asians. It's horrible, horrible and discriminatory. Average IQ in Venezuela, 84. Bangladesh, 82. Ethiopia, 69. 69. Leo, 89. Iraq, 87. 87. Remember, numbers are not perfect. But they're probably not way off. And these kinds of discrepancies. Look at this. From 108 to 69. My gosh. What is that? Close to three? A little. Oh, man. That's. Staggering. Almost 40 points. Almost 40 IQ points. Difference. And yet, of course, the story from the left is, if you look at, let's let's say, well, will people from Ethiopia over time do better or worse than people from Hong Kong? Well, we know the answer to that on average. Individuals, sure, on average. And of course, then the left will say, well, all the differences are due to racism, bigotry, discrimination. 
That's not what the science says. The science says it's a bad IQ. Economic Freedom Index. Remember, you're looking for the gold bars here. You're looking for the orange stripes that say it's higher. Remember, this is uh, zero bad, 100 good. Now, Hong Kong, number one on the Economic Freedom Index. Very, very impressive. Iraq, such a destroyed mess that, that you can't even rate it at the moment. I mean, it's uh, just watch my presentation, Iraq, a decade of hell. It's I can't even go there emotionally, what's happened to that poor country and those poor people. So United States, 75.7. Nigeria, 58.5. Nicaragua, 58.9. Thailand, 67.1. Trinidad and Tobago, 57.7. Hong Kong, 90.2. Venezuela, ooh, 25.2. So yeah, you want to go hunt rats in the sewer and sell yourself into prostitution for a loaf of bread. Venezuela is the place to go. And they all voted. No, I shouldn't say that. That's too much. I, the majority voted for the socialists. And a lot of Western intellectuals cheered on that socialism. A lot of media personalities cheered on that socialism. And they're pretty quiet about it now, aren't they? Bangladesh, 55.1. Ethiopia, 52.8. Laos, 53.6. Lower, lower, lower. Dare I say it? Yes, I do dare say it, my friends. On this slide, as in most slides, the numbers are to the left. To the left. Very subtle, don't you think? All right. Corruption Perceptions Index. How corrupt? Zero, highly corrupt. 100, very clean. United States, 75. Nigeria, 27. Nicaragua, 26. Thailand, 37. Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago, 41. Hong Kong, SAR, 77. Venezuela, 18. Bangladesh, 28. Ethiopia, 35. Laos, 29. These guys managed to pull something from the rubble of Iraq. 18. 18. Now, here's an interesting question. We know that a lot of personality traits are genetic. We also know that they're, because they're genetic, they're inheritable. And so who survives the most? Who flourishes? Who has the most children in a highly corrupt society? Well, people who leverage that corruption. People with high integrity do well in a high-integrity society. People with high corruption, with a lack of integrity, do very well in a corrupt society. So the longer a society has been corrupted, the longer society has punished integrity and rewarded corruption, the more the personality traits associated with corruption and success under corruption flourish. Because the most corrupt have the most kids and the least corrupt have the least children over time. Well... It's a challenge. It's a big challenge to model over. Human Freedom Index. Remember, you're looking for the gold. 8.4 for the US, 5.9 for Nigeria, 6.7 for Nicaragua, 6.5 for Thailand, 6.8 for Trinidad and Tobago, Hong Kong SAR, 8.9. Venezuela, 4.3. Bangladesh, 5.9. Ethiopia, 5.4. Laos, 6.5. And Iraq, again, no data for that. 41 to 50, last round. Let's see how we do. Do we break the cycle? Hint, we don't break the cycle. Spoiler! Still worth looking into, though. Argentina sent, or came from, 196,095. Portugal, 195,902. Egypt, 185,131. France, 183, 284. 
Now I'm starting to sound like a guy's calling. Bingo. Cambodia, 178,571. Romania, 174,960. Ghana, 158,481. Greece, 149,249. Israel, 142,162. And Ireland, Ireland, 138,889. Well, still a fairly healthy chunk of people and... Now they have kids at different rates, depending on ethnicities. So, again, we're at a 60 base graft here. United States, 98. Argentina, 93. Argentina is one of the, you know, up until the 1920s, Argentina had the same GDP per capita as America. And then the socialists got in. Portugal, IQ average as 95. Egypt, Egypt, 81. France, uh, largely white population, clocks in at about the same as the United States, 98. Cambodia, 91. Romania, 94. Ghana, 73. Greece, 92. Been a bit of a topple since the days of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, I suppose. Israel, 87. Now, just for those who say, well, the Ashkenazi Jews have a higher IQ, but Israel, you know, there is not just Ashkenazi Jews. The Diaspora Jews have a higher IQ, according to many reports, but that's not the entire population, of course, of Israel, just for those who are wondering. In Ireland, ah, country of my birth, boy. Not breaking a lot of stereotypes that I grew up with. Clocking in at 92, average IQ. Yeah, it took them a while to assimilate, too, don't you know? Economic Freedom Index, do we get any to the right? Well, yeah, we get one, although that's probably a bit backdated. Zero, bad, 100 good, US 75.7, Argentina 52.3, Portugal 63.4, Egypt 53.4, France 63.9, Cambodia 58.7, Romania 69.4, Ghana 56, Greece 57.3, Israel 72.2, and Ireland Ah, the Irish Tiger, they did liberalize things, and they got a lot of investment, a lot of job growth, a lot of economic growth, which gave them all the money in the world to fund massive migration from the third world into Ireland, because pride goeth before, well, you know the rest of that. Ireland, 80.4, Economic Freedom Index. Corruption perception. No gold bars. Everybody's worse than the United States, who's coming in from 41 to 50. Um, U.S. 75. On a 0 to 100, 100 being good. Argentina, 39. Portugal, 63. Egypt, 32. France, 70. Cambodia, 21. Romania, 48. Ghana, 40. Greece, 48. Israel, 62. Ireland, 74. Close, but no shamrock. Again, countries coming in, in general, not as honest as the United States and some significantly less honest than the United States as a whole. Human Freedom Index. Hi, there's one at the bottom. 10 good, 0 bad. US 8.4, Argentina 6.5, Portugal 8.3, Egypt 4.8, France 8.0, Cambodia 7.2, Romania 8.2, Ghana 7.1, Greece 7.2, Israel 7.7, and Ireland coming in at 8.7. All right. So there's been a huge change. Right, And I'm sorry to use the obvious coloring here, but the white bars are from Europe. And of course, from Europe uh, up until post-Second World War period meant whites coming in. 
So very little immigration in the 1830s. This goes from the 1830s to the 2000s. And as you can see, huge amounts of immigration, mostly from Europe, a little bit from Latin America, some from Asia, virtually none from Africa, and other includes Canada and so on. But uh, yeah, mostly white. And so people say, well, it happened in the past. It's like, yeah, well, European and white, a lot of cultural history, a lot of cultural similarity and so on. It's not that tough to integrate. You know, like, again, just to sort of think about it, if you move to Sweden, okay, that's not a bad example now because everyone's moving to Sweden uh, except the Swedes moving out. But uh, let's say you move to Poland. You move to Poland. Uh, how long is it going to take for you to kind of get comfortable in Poland and adopt the Polish values and so on? You know, your kids are going to be pretty blended and they're going to be no problem. Certainly your grandkids are going to, you're going to blend. That famous line from my cousin Vinny, oh, you blend. But uh, if you go to some other country, Japan and so on, it's more of a, more of a challenge. So, and, and it was a big challenge as it stood. Then, see, the United States has taken pauses in immigration before. To, to allow for assimilation. You don't just keep eating. At some point, you've got to stop eating and you've got to allow yourself time to digest, figure out if it's working. And so here, if you look at the shift, and we're, we're talking about the 1965 Hart-Seller Act was the big change. This was sponsored by the late Senator Edward Kennedy. He died of a, he died of a, a brain tumor, I think, and the brain tumor died out of nothing to eat. And it was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson, it was a huge piece of legislation, probably the most important piece of legislation in American history, fundamentally changed U.S. immigration patterns. So there were debates in Congress saying, well, what if it changes the ethnic makeup and demography of the country to the point where it becomes unrecognizable to the people who actually built the country? Senator Kennedy said, the bill will not flood our cities with immigrants. It will not upset the ethnic mix of our society. It will not relax the standards of admission, it will not cause American workers to lose their jobs, and I'd not kill Mary Jo Kopechny. Oh, sorry, that last part was not there. Sorry, that's a footnote for another presentation of mine. And so how did you know it was going to do all these things? Because Senator Kennedy said that it wasn't. Now, in the beginning of the 20th century, 86% of immigrants came from Europe and were almost exclusively white. European traditions, European history, Judeo-Christian values, Greco-Roman philosophical traditions, whether, you know, the arts, the, the everything, European. By the end of the 20th century, instead of 86% of immigrants being white coming from Europe, 82% came from Asia and Latin America. The 1965 Act resulted in an over 300% increase in immigration. Now, since, and with this immigration, you require a huge welfare state to make it work. You require massive debt, you require unfunded liabilities, because you've got to defer spending into the future, because you need to spend it on immigration in the here and now. It's not. Immigration since 1965 has been a big, giant government program. The government largely stuck back before. There were times when it was limited and so on, for Chinese in particular, in the 19th century. But immigration right now is a big, giant government program, where the government is firing free stuff at people who make it into America, legally and illegally. The illegal is a whole other presentation, but uh, it's a big, giant government. It's not a hallmark of freedom or free choice and so on. Uh, you know, it's different if your girl decides to go out with you voluntarily. If you have to pay her 500 bucks for her to go out with you, well, it's just a whole different kind of relationship now, isn't it? And since the 65 Hard Seller Act fundamentally changed just about everything to do with demographics and uh, ethnic composition and 
all of that government spending has been out of control. Because you can't have mass immigration from places like Ghana without a giant welfare state. It just can't happen because you drop a bunch of people with an average IQ that's not particularly high into a country where they don't speak the language, where lots of stuff is being automated. There's nothing for them to do. So you need welfare, welfare, spending, spending, public services. You need health care. I mean, one of the big drivers for Obamacare is a lot of immigrants can't afford health care. And so you got to find some way to get the native population to pay and pay and pay and pay. So if you look at government spending since the 1960s, it's gone through the roof. A lot of it has to do with the need to fund this massive government program called paid immigration. So, yeah, it's a huge, huge change. And nobody was asked. In fact, people were specifically lied to about the outcome of all of this. People were lied to. And anybody who raised any questions was shouted down as a racist and a xenophobe. It was not a fair, open, data-driven debate. Nobody was asked. And nobody still is asked. In fact, every time they are asked, as I mentioned before, they say, can we stop and talk about this just a little bit? Because these are some pretty big changes. Wars were fought to maintain the integrity of countries. And now... So, and so look at this. So these are, again, 1830 to the 2000s. Europe, Latin America, Asia, Africa, and other. Virtually no Africa until the 1960s, 1970s. A massive crash in European immigration has never recovered. And if you look at Latin America, gone through the roof. Gone through the roof. Asia, huge. And again, people's forefathers bled, fought, and died to build this country, to build America, to build whatever country we're talking about. Do people have a right to cultural continuity? Do people have a right for their values to be maintained? When you have a big, powerful government and you have ethnicities that have their own in-group preferences, of course they do, right? I mean, there's a Hispanic group called La Raza, which translates to the race. It's a race advocacy organization, very big and very powerful one. Boy, you, you try and get a white race advocacy organization going, man, well, good luck with that. Everyone's allowed to have in-group preferences except whites because, well, whites uh, need to be exploited to pay in general for all of this massive immigration from other countries and cultures. So, yeah, this uh, who's asked? Nobody's asked just forced to pay. And you people will try and destroy your life if you even raise some basic questions about the wisdom of this. Well, of course, again, it's the left's thirst for power. It's not about what's good for the country. It's about what's good for the addiction to political dominance. But yeah, you get a lot of warring ethnicities and, and uh, it's okay to some degree when the money's still flowing, you know, before the bills have to be paid when, you know, if, if you're at a buffet and other people jump in front of you, it's like, like, yeah, there's enough to eat, you know, when there's one sticky bun left and everyone's hungry, well, people might not get along quite so well when the massive fire hose of fiat currency begins to dry up, as it inevitably will. So, (sighs) you want to check out Welfare Use by Immigrant and Native Households by Stephen Camerata at the Center for Immigration Studies. He's been on this program a bunch of times to discuss this report and his other truly brilliant, fantastical, data-driven immigration studies. So, Immigrant Welfare Usage by Origin Country. So, 
Natives use welfare at 30%. Now remember, natives include all of the people from 1965 and onwards who came in not from Europe. So 30%. So remember earlier I was saying, well, if they come for the freedom, why would they end up on welfare so much? Central and America, sorry, Central America and Mexico. Origin country, the welfare usage from this group is 73%. Come on. Of course, on average, they're not sending their best because they consume welfare at more than twice the rate, almost two and a half times the rate of the domestic population. How is that of benefit to the domestic population? Well, you can say there's exceptions, sure. But when you're making society-wide decisions, you can't deal with the outliers. You deal with the outliers, you deal with everyone as an individual in your personal life, you're hiring and firing and making friends and date. Sure, but when you're making big decisions about the democracy, you have to look at the numbers for the group. Because that's who you're getting is the group, not one guy. So Central America and Mexico, if that's the origin country, welfare, consumption rate, 73% of the people. From the Caribbean, 51%. From Africa, 48%. From South America, 41%. From East Asia, 32%. All of these groups using welfare at higher to significantly higher to massively higher rates than the domestic population. So what is the value as a whole for the domestic population? I mean, we're not not even talking about massive hordes of low-skilled people coming in driving down the wages particularly of low-skilled workers. Hey, that's great for the Chamber of Commerce. It's great for the pig-snouted capitalists snuffling away at the trough of third-world immigration. But for the average person in America, particularly if you're low-skilled, your wages are being crushed. They're collapsing. Supply and demand, right? Increased demand for housing drives up the cost of housing for everyone, for the rich as well. Because uh, these people move into a particular community and other people move out to other places and then they drive up the prices there other people move out it flows all the way uphill well of course to maintain the property value of the boomers is the foundational necessity for western governments at the moment because we all saw what happened in america when that value dipped just a little bit almost took down the entire system so got to keep the value of the boomers real estate up so you've got all these imaginary assets you keep pouring immigration into the country well, that's going to keep booing up the property values if you allow the property values to fall because the boomers had fewer kids than their parents and so on, and millennials even fewer. Well, it'd be tough for the boomers, I guess, in a little bit of the richest generation in history, they could survive as a whole. But uh, anyway, so yeah, Europe, those coming from Europe do use their um, welfare consumption rates are lower than that of the native population in South Asians. 17%, only use 17%. So only 17% of the South Asians use welfare. Again, 17% versus Central America and Mexico at 73%. Don't tell me that they're coming for the freedom and the desire to entrepreneurially participate in the free market. So here's the thing. What if I told you that assimilation wasn't going to happen? I mean, just go and ask these groups, do you want to assimilate? Well, a lot of them will say, no, really don't want to assimilate, thank you very much. So what if assimilation doesn't happen? Now, what's dangled is that there's going to be this assimilation that it's going, well, all these immigrants are going to pay for retirement pensions and so on. Eh, not at 73% welfare usage. For, for the, no, that's not going to happen. But here's the thing. 
So in the West, this is a big picture topic here. So in the West, significant moves towards the abolition of slavery started in the late-ish last quarter of the 18th century. So that's a long time ago, close to, well, 240 years ago. Well, whites began to say, the Europeans, the Christians began to say, you know, slavery, I don't know, it's really not not very good now, is it? And, I mean, it took time. It took time, you know, pre-internet, things kind of moved a little slowly. But eventually, uh, slavery was outlawed, uh, not just in the British Empire, which was a third of the globe at its height, but around the world. And, you know, the popular narrative, 800,000 men died uh, freeing the slaves in the American Civil War, untold amounts of blood and treasure spent by the British Navy and British Empire to end slavery around the world. So you could say for close to a quarter of a millennia, for 240, 250 uh, 250 years, whites have been trying to not be racist, let's say, right? And uh, what does the left say after all of this? In general, whites are horrifically racist and slavery, the, the, the problems of slavery only accumulate at the feet of white people because 150 years ago, 5 to 10% of the white population had slaves. So it's all on you because no good deed in the world goes unpunished by the left. So... So the, and the left would say, even more focused, in an even more focused way, since the 1950s, 1960s, the left has been lecturing white people about, don't be racist, don't be sexist. And what has the end result of all of that been? Now, the whites in general have said, yeah, we don't want to be sexist, we don't want to be racist. So what has the end result of that been? Well, the end result of that has been that whites are still considered to be hopelessly sexist and hopelessly racist, just to point two of the big sort of communist-inspired terms. So, a long time after whites admitted that this was a problem to be worked on and they wanted to be better, it's still a huge catastrophic problem. In other words, whites have not reformed themselves to the point where they can be uh, considered successful in their attempts, right? So, if whites can't be fixed of racism and sexism when whites have openly admitted that it's a problem and, and want to fix it, what makes you think that people from Haiti can, can just magically assimilate, can change for the better? It's been 240 years. Whites have been fighting racism. Still hasn't been fixed, still hasn't been solved, still hasn't been sorted out. So what makes anyone think that there's this magic power to change other cultures when, according to the left, white culture can't even be fixed? When whites have admitted a huge problem? So... What about other cultures that believe things antithetical to the Western tradition and they don't even say that there's a problem? They don't even admit that there's a problem. They think everything they do is great. If you can't fix whites, how are you going to fix everyone else to conform to Western values? You understand it's a crazy proposition. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So... You got 50 million plus new Americans, undercounted, not counting the 20 to 30 million illegals and so on. Okay, 50 million, give or take, right? Who are they? What values do they hold? Do they want to assimilate? Do they want to become 
Westerners, European-derived values, do they value the free market? Do they value separation of church and state? Probably not in a lot of the Muslim communities, because, you know, it's kind of a unity in the Sharia, right? So do they value equal rights for women? Do they value free speech? Do they value free association? Do they value voluntarism? Do they value small government? Well, the answer is, is pretty clear. Certainly, I mean, you can look at my presentation on free speech. Support for free speech is directly, directly correlates with IQ. Directly dose-dependent. higher the IQ, the higher the support for free speech. So when you get a lot of people from low-IQ countries who statistically are very unlikely to support free speech at all, what happens when the left is continually ginning up all of these conflicts as well? It's one thing to bring to have a multiracial society. It's another thing to have a multiracial society where the left, like Iago, is constantly whispering into the ears of all the non-whites that the, the whites are evil, colonialists, and, and, and racists. And it's like, come on, come on. That, that's not going to work. I mean, it's not designed to work from the left. It's a destruction mechanism. It's not, uh, you know. When they say that diversity is a strength, what that means is that the people that they want to import vote for the left. Of course, it's a strength for them politically, right? And they don't assume that's going to change in the next generation. They, they assume that's going to remain constant as it does, as it does. So, a lot of new Americans, tens and tens and tens and tens of millions. What values do they hold? What values will their children hold? Will they assimilate if the welfare state pays them whether they do or they don't? In fact, pays them more if they don't. They're being paid not to assimilate. Will they assimilate? Well, of course not. Of course not. What's going to happen to the future of the United States when the belief systems are fragmented? And it's one thing to have fragmented belief systems. That's natural. It's another thing to have fragmented belief systems in countries where the government can control so much. And this is why in Europe, separation of church and state became a survival necessity. Because when the state had an official religion, every single religious denomination was trying to gain control of the state to impose its own religion on everyone else. So you had to separate them. Now, we don't have a separation of state in economics. The state in the West, uh, the American government, the Western European governments, they all control trillions of dollars of resources. And every group is trying to get those resources. And right now, a great way to get resources is to play victim and scream racism at white people. You know, we've got this big, giant, guilt, red button on our foreheads. We spit out resources like a vending machine. It's terrible. It, it is a recipe for catastrophe, the kind of which has never before been seen in human affairs. So... We need to have intelligent discussions about all of this. I don't know what the solutions are. I certainly don't know all the solutions. I do know that we need to have free discussions about all of these things because these are important. It's important for the immigrants who've come to experience the Western way of life, that the Western way of life is maintained. It's a huge insult to people who've sacrificed and, and paid and traveled and, and learned new languages and new cultures and new ideas to simply disintegrate what they moved to the West to achieve. To, to have. So, virtue signaling, saying mindless, ridiculous slogans, diversity is strength, doesn't mean anything. We need to look at the cold, hard facts on the ground. We need to look at the realities of what is going on in the world. 
And you may gain momentary satisfaction from this sort of virtue signaling of, I love everyone. And of course, big business, maybe small business too, well, they all love the cheap labor. But as we all know, nothing's more expensive than free. And nothing is more costly than that which is subsidized. And it's really not free. It comes at an absolutely horrible cost. And so the refusal to talk about these basic facts, the, the thirst for cheap labor, the thirst for votes, for big government, for collectivists, for leftists, not only is it not free, it might cost us, all of us, everything. Everything.